You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. And thank you very much, Scott. Hi, everybody. And here's what's ahead this hour. From Fed we trust to behind the curve to fear of the taper, it's been an emotional ride for investors as they try to decipher if the Fed's potential September taper is the right move. We will look at how to best position right now. Plus, China passing one of the world's strictest data privacy laws in yet another blow to its tech sector. What it means for the Chinese stocks and the U.S. companies operating there. And more and more companies are pushing back their return to office plans. So should investors start thinking about the never return to office plays? We'll dig into that. But first, let's get a look at these markets, and I will take you there once again today. The Dow is up 238 points right now, so a pretty decent rally across the board. Two-thirds of a percent for the Dow, three-quarters of a percent for the S&P, one percent pop for the Nasdaq there. And we're trying to end on a high week after a choppy couple of sessions. We're still on pace to end the week in the red. The worst weekly drop in about a month is what we're pacing for right now. So, again, this is kind of the uh, the uplift trying to stem the losses that we've seen Monday through Friday. So far, crypto is also in the green today with Bitcoin and Ethereum seeing a nice pop. Bitcoin inching back up towards the 50K level, 4.5% gain ether around 3,200. Uh, back in the markets, industrials are trailing with deer among the worst performers in the S&P, despite a beat on earnings and raising its forecast tells you the difficult sort of sector environment that we're in. Deer is down about 2.5%. Speaking of which, crude is also on pace for its seventh straight drop. It's hitting its lowest level since May. We're all the way back to 62. Remember when Pippa yesterday told us we were up at 77. Just what last month, a 1.5% drop. Once again, this could be crude's worst week since last October. And shares of Target and RH are moving higher as Cowan names both retailers' top picks, saying they'll continue to benefit from remote and hybrid work. So even the names rising today are sort of a pandemic play target up more than 3%. So as we retrace the week, remember, we started off with news that the Fed was likely on course to announce tapering in September. The markets took that in stride. As you can see here on Monday, we really kind of shrugged that off. Different story as we moved through the week and the data started getting worse. Retail sales missed, home builder sentiment and housing starts dropped. The Philly Fed index was weak. The Empire State came in shy. Still, the Hawks dug in their claws. And sure enough, James Bullard out on, I believe, Thursday, maybe Wednesday, the days are getting confused, saying there are too many risks from going too slow on tightening. His hawkish uh, message, again, you know, maybe we saw some choppiness here on Thursday, but look at the markets today shaking it off and then moving back to the upside. So is Bullard right? And what's the message for investors here? Jason Brady is the president and CEO of Thornburg Investment Management. Jason, it's good to have you. And should investors be positioning for the taper? And if so, Does that mean continued difficult investing in things like value and banks and rate sensitive sectors and oil and China? Look, I think you've 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 hit the nail on the head in the context of what's been driving markets, which is really, you know, with fear of a Fed tapering. In 2013, we saw this play out and we had the sort of fear of the beard of Ben Bernanke. Uh, Powell's clean shaven. So I think it's going to be a little bit uh, less worrisome for investors, as you point out. Uh, what the Fed should do and what they will do might be different for a lot of investors. But I do think the Fed will taper. Uh, There will be volatility, but ultimately, remember, they're tapering because the market and the economy are improving. And though the data was a little less good recently, it was really more that its rate of improvement was slowing versus, in fact, that things were getting much worse. So let's just focus on investors here for a moment, because, again, the taper plays should be the kind of plays that suggest handoff from 
Fed-supported economy to one with its own momentum. And the whole point was to be in the reopening plays, the value plays, the banks, the rising interest rates. None of those trades are working. They haven't been working all summer. They really kind of peaked in late spring. So what do you say to somebody who might be overweight the banks right now, or energy, obviously, or other cyclical names? We just talked about Deere's declines. Sure. So um, obviously each individual name is different and the sectors are different. I actually think that financials are more attractive and certain parts of the financials are more attractive than, say, energy. Uh, but within the sort of overall value or cyclical uptick, I think what you just saw really was the stocks get ahead of themselves a little bit. But ultimately, there's significant value in, in those names as volatility increases because the cash flow that they generate continues to be significant, and valuations there are notably lower than in some of the growthier names that I think uh, people have rotated into marginally. So if you hold, and I see that you like J.P. Morgan, for example, I would almost posit to you the only catalyst I can see is if the Fed delays the taper for being in the financials or for being long bonds or whatever. I, I'm sure you must feel differently. What do you think are the catalysts for these trades to really start clicking again? Sure. So there's a few fundamental elements, and then there's obviously sort of what generally how people feel about the sector. Fundamental elements are really just the credit quality of the of the folks that J.P. Morgan is lending to, and the overall environment to include the M&A environment, which is pretty significant. I think when you think about how financials can work more generally, what you think about is a steepening curve. Remember, the Fed is not talking about or maybe even talking about talking about raising rates. And in fact, I think that there's significant concern about when they might ever do that. Whereas tapering is a different conversation. I think the Fed is getting into the conversation of, hey, why are we continuing to buy MBS when the housing market's super hot? Yeah. Uh, ultimately, the Fed will work with macroprudential legislation, especially, especially with Lael Brainerd, if, if she's in fact head of the Fed, think it's weird versus that, higher rates. I, I mean, they always go into these crises saying, you know, bond purchases are meant to support the economy and ease financial conditions, but they try to exit it going, no, 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 don't worry about the bonds. That really, that's not related. And it's like, well, okay, but I don't really, I mean, you know, tightening financial conditions are tightening conditions. Speaking of the Fed, one final quick thing I want to sneak in here. You know, there's been a lot of speculation about whether Jackson Hole will be a non-event because Powell's going to be there virtually. I don't pretend to know like Steve Leisman would know the real mechanics of what's going on there. But talk to me about the timeline and what you think the Fed really is signaling at this point. Look, I think what Chair Powell is dealing with now is an increasingly fractious Fed. So you're hearing from Bullard, you're hearing from Rosengren, you're hearing from a number of folks from Kaplan this morning. And all of it is a little bit of a, hey, look, this doesn't make as much sense as it used to. So I don't think that Chair Powell is going to get in front of you know, a much broader audience and say anything super substantive because ultimately he's got to get his own cabinet in, in, in line first. All right, Jason, thank you. You're the so the one-man cabinet today, we really appreciate your point of view trying to explain these markets. It's good to have you. Jason Brady with Thornburg Management. Meanwhile, the SEC is warming up to a Bitcoin ETF, and the battle is well underway to see who will become the first money manager to get theirs out the door. Bob Bassani is here with the latest. Bob? You know, uh, Kelly, here's the problem. Everybody thought that Gary Gensler was going to be the golden boy for Bitcoin and Bitcoin ETFs. I mean, he taught crypto at MIT. Therefore, he gets it right. Therefore, he's going to approve a Bitcoin. Uh, turns out, no. Uh, what Gensler has done is very clever and very intelligent. First, he has said, I am in favor of financial innovation. And he's been very bullish on that. However, he's pointed out, I am now head of the SEC, which is in charge of protecting consumers. 
It was founded to do that, protect them from fraud and misrepresentation. And the crypto exchanges, there's been a lot of problems with that. So Gensler has come out very cleverly and said, yes, financial innovation. However, I have no control over the regulatory structure of these crypto exchanges. I need that. And he's basically gone to Congress and said, will you clarify this for me? Will you help me out, either with legislation or clarification or an understanding? Now, he's also gone a little further. He said and implied that he would look favorably upon a Bitcoin futures ETF. What's the difference? A Bitcoin futures ETF is not based on Bitcoin. It's based on Bitcoin futures. Yes, there is a relationship, but Bitcoin futures are a regulated market. Bitcoin and the way they would set it up in an ETF would imply that he would have to uh, approve something that is actually traded in unregulated markets. And that's the distinction. So now everybody has said, oh, my gosh, we're not going to apply for a Bitcoin ETF. We should be applying for a Bitcoin futures ETF. Mm. And they're all scrambling to do that. The problem, Kelly, is very simple. The Bitcoin community and the ETF community believe that Futures are sort of an inferior product compared to owning the actual product itself. And it is because of the costs involved. And it's also not pure accumulation of Bitcoin, which you could argue an ETF isn't either, Bob. But then others say it's a more efficient way to do so because there's a lot of fees associated with trying to accumulate Bitcoin. Yeah. The, look, the whole idea makes a lot of sense. I mean, think of the gold model. If gold, you had to own physical gold, store it in your house. There were storage problems. It was a problem. Gold ETF actually figured out the problem. There are vaults in London where they hold gold for you. They charge you a fee, 30, 40 basis points, 50 basis points for holding the gold in London. And you have a GLD, a gold ETF, something like that. And that solved a lot of the problem. This Bitcoin would be a similar structure. Who wants to own Bitcoin in an exchange where you can get stolen, for example, or something can happen or you forget the password? Mm -hmm. You've got the thing right there. Uh, But you do have significant roll costs associated with those futures contracts. And that's why the community doesn't like it. They saw what happened with the oil futures contracts last year, Kelly, and that had left a very bad taste in people's mouths. It's a very interesting choice by the SEC here. Uh, Bob, we appreciate all your reporting on it. Thanks. Okay. Bob Bassani. Coming up, China cracking down on its tech industry, imposing one of the world's strictest data privacy laws. Maybe great for consumers, but what happens to the companies now? We'll look at the fallout and what it means to the American names doing business there. Plus, are we setting up for a work-from-home forever world? And if so, what stocks are said to benefit? And here's a look at this week's biggest decliners on the Dow, Boeing, Chevron, and Caterpillar. We're back in a moment. Welcome back. China unveiling new legislation, including a super strict data privacy law that could have huge implications for any companies doing business there. Eunice Yoon joins us now live from Beijing with the details. Eunice. Thanks, Kelly. Well, China's uh, personal information protection law focuses on uh, protecting user data, uh, similar to Europe's GDPR. Uh, The law goes into effect on November 1st, and uh, it dictates that companies collect the minimum amount of data for a service, obtain consent for sensitive information, obtain easy or offer easy opt-out options for consumers, and get government approval to transfer data Overseas. Now, separately, the cyber watchdog unveiled tighter data collection for the car industry, again, uh, 
requiring approval to transfer data abroad. Now, in addition to in addition to data privacy, the Chinese lawmakers here discussed expanding the country's anti-sanctions law to Hong Kong and Macau. Uh, but in a surprise move, Beijing decided to delay the vote. Now, it's interesting because this this law would have allowed Beijing to potentially punish companies with operations in Hong Kong and Macau if those companies are to abide by U.S. or European sanctions. Kelly? Oh, that's interesting. So they delayed that piece. I, I mean, that's that's a whole, mm-hmm. I guess, sort of separate discussion, but I didn't realize that. It's very, very good to know. On the flip side, going back to what's happening with Chinese data protection, Eunice, a lot of people have pointed out how swiftly Chinese tech giants have fallen from the ranks of top 10 internet companies in the world and that kind of thing. Is China just betting that in the long run, these valuations and their growth will eventually recover? Well, yeah, actually, uh, they are. In fact, uh, state media today, uh, a very influential economic journal, um, had that exact point Hmm. as one of their headlines. Uh, They were saying in a commentary that this is short-term fluctuations for longer-term gains and that the main point of what the uh, government is doing is really trying to make sure that the economy, that uh, the Internet standards and data privacy and all of the regulations are up to snuff to make sure that it's it's a healthier environment for companies overall. So yeah. that is what the government the government says. But, you know, there are a lot of uh, companies that are scratching their heads because they do understand that they're they're getting battered. Yes, they are. Their shares as well. The investors uh, included. Eunice, thank you very, very much. We always appreciate you staying up for us. Eunice Yoon over in China. So is this new law providing more clarity or less about the regulatory landscape for companies doing business there? Some pretty sharp declines for Chinese tech stocks again this week. Tencent, Baidu, JD dropping 10 percent. Alibaba plunging about 14 percent. But if you're thinking about scooping up some of those names, my next guest says be careful. Joining me now is DeWardrick McNeil. He's senior policy analyst at Longview and a CNBC contributor. Dwardrick, welcome. Uh, so when are we going to have the kind of clarity that would make you comfortable with buying some of these declines? Hi, Kelly. Thanks for having me. Look, I think we are getting a lot more of a picture of what has upset or at least concerned the central government, the CCP, and we're getting a sense of what regulators are being asked to crack down on. However, there's been a lot of talk about Xi Jinping's concern about what he considers to be unregulated or out-of-control capitalism. And so for me, what that means is this is more than a regulatory event. Xi Jinping is likely looking to retool the Chinese economy completely. And while the fundamentals of these companies may look good now, we're not sure that these business models will survive what Xi Jinping has planned for the retooling of the economy. So I'm not sure that just sitting pat, trying to survive the onslaught, looking for the bottom, is a good strategy because the bottom may not exist in terms of what we think these companies will be on the other side of all of this. And we heard Kathy Wood earlier this week say, you know, her memory would be seared for a long time about the fact that China basically just nationalized the after-school education sector. So I can totally understand why people would want to tread carefully. That said, we know the agenda. It's sort of 1950s America. It's encouraged, you know, child uh, bearing and, you know, put families first and anything that makes the cost of living too high or interferes with those goals is, is subjugated to them. But to me, it would seem a platform like Alibaba or some of these others, DeWardrick, won't they ultimately become utility-like in the sense that, you know, I don't see why they would themselves would be some kind of direct threat to this goal that China has to increase 
its population growth. And so could investors at some point just say, listen, they're, they've fallen, but they're not going anywhere. And that maybe the upside is capped, but so is the downside. Yeah, I think that's a good way to think about it, Kelly. But let me toss out one other thing that's a goal that Xi Jinping has recently announced, and that is how he looks at accumulation of capital and the distribution of that capital. So they may well survive. I think she has a plan for them to survive. But there's also an expectation that some of this wealth is going to filter down to other people and that the concentration of wealth among a few big companies and a few billionaires is not the model that he's looking for. So, you know, in terms of share prices, that's fine. You, you, may, you may regain those things, but then what will happen to that money? What will happen to right. the profitability? That's the question that I have as I sit here today. No, it's a great point. I only wonder if it's not going to be these companies, can China reliably figure out how to generate the kinds of GDP or you know the size of financial markets that you think it would need to support all of its other goals? I guess the last question I would ask you then is, where do you think investors might look um, you know, in terms of reasonably investing in Chinese companies, American companies with big Chinese operations? Or do you think that they should kind of as many are starting to do. I mean, these ETFs that X China out are growing in popularity and assets. Is that your own best advice here? Well, I'm reluctant to give advice because I'm not a professional investor. I am a policy guy. And what I can tell you is there's a lot of uncertainty still left here. So yes, we're seeing regulations, but there's some real fundamental things happening in China. And me personally, I would sit pat for a while until we figure more of this out. Wow. All right. All right. Drew Ordrick, thank you very, very much for joining us. It's really good to get your point thank of view. You, Drew Ordrick McNeil is Longview Global's managing director, as we mentioned. Coming up, new data shows stimulus may not actually be the best way to stimulate the economy. We're going to look at why and what the better option may be if the economy ends up needing more support. And the second largest U.S. mortgage lender will now accept Bitcoin as mortgage payment. We've got all those details coming up. Welcome back to The Exchange. Markets are holding on to their gains as we move throughout the afternoon. We're just slightly off the highs. The Dow's up 254 points right now, three quarters of a percent. The Nasdaq up more than one percent. Let's hone in on some of the individual movers this hour. Fashion retailer Buckle is down more than six percent. It's well off the lows of the session now, though. Look at that, how it's climbed back. It's down seven percent on the week, down two percent today. I did see a decrease in online sales year over year in its earnings. The stock uh, is still higher for the year. Next, check out shares of They're down about 4% today to bring this week's declines to around 16% for those declines. That's its worst week since last April of 2020 as the company continues to struggle to find enough drivers to meet demand. And finally, Mosaic is moving higher following an upgrade from HSBC. They say supply disruptions, higher feedstock costs, and low inventories are catalysts that could support strong prices ahead. Mosaic is up 3.5% today and more than 32% this year. For more on this call and others, go to CNBC.com slash pro. Now to Tyler Matheson for a CNBC News update. Hi, Tyler. Hey, Kelly. Here's what's happening at this hour. A new survey shows one in five Americans would not seek emergency care due to fears of the coronavirus. Most respondents said they worried about getting COVID from other patients or staff in crowded emergency rooms. On the news, fighting COVID and easing fears at the Little League World Series, which is bringing together unvaccinated young ballplayers. Tune in tonight at 7 o'clock Eastern Time. Chad Isaac, a Navy veteran, has been found guilty of the gruesome killings of four people in North Dakota. The four victims were stabbed about 100 times. Three were also shot. Isaac could face life in prison without parole. 
And preparing to leave, moving vans have been spotted at the New York governor's mansion. Workers were seen carrying out boxes of artwork as Governor Andrew Cuomo prepares for his last day in office. He's scheduled to step down on Monday and give way to Lieutenant Governor Kathy Hochul at the stroke of midnight. Back to you, Kelly. All right, Tyler, we'll see you soon. Coming up in rapid fire, the work from home forever trade, Zoom's phone boost, Microsoft's cloud cloud, and Facebook's VR office. We'll dig into it all next. But first, it's Friday, and that means it's time to look ahead to what's in store for markets next week. Here's your Friday fast forward. Welcome back, everybody. It's time for a special Friday edition of Rapid Fire. It's the work from home forever theme as Apple, Schwab and PricewaterhouseCoopers are all delaying return to office plans. And it's now what, late 2021? We're talking about going into 2022. Here to help break down all of these headlines for us, Robert Frank, Diana Olick and Matt Maley, who is managing director at Miller Tayback. It's great to have you guys all here. Let's start with Zoom, kind of the poster child for work from home. They're going to report earnings in a couple of weeks and at least one firm is expecting blowout results. Mizuho just reiterating shares as a buy, calling for stronger than expected customer renewals as Delta Cloud's return to work plans. They also see strong traction for something called Zoom Phone uh, because of hybrid and remote work. And Zoom shares, they're actually about flat on the year because, remember, they pretty much quintupled in 2020. Robert, what do you say? Well, look, it was uh, about a year ago that Jerry Seinfeld came out with that famous op-ed in The New York Times saying that basically remote work would not kill cities, especially New York. And my favorite line, which still rings true today, is that energy, attitude and personality cannot be remoted through even the best fiber optic lines. I think uh, people do have Zoom fatigue. Clearly, this will be a tool that is important to businesses and workers going forward. But a year from now, will people really be Zooming more and will more people be Zooming than right now? I think we've kind of hit a peak. Okay, that's a good point. But Matt, I would add, I've been surprised. I mean, it, we all have, right? But we thought that, okay, at least by this Labor Day, it would be normalization, a lot of people going back to the office. And in some cases, that's still true. But in many, many cases, even just anecdotally, this stuff is all being pushed back. And no one's going to push it back into the winter. We know the winter could be really bad again. So what are we talking about next spring? Uh, yeah, that's one of the things that now with this new wave, new, new, new waves of the of the of variants of, of COVID, uh, it, as you said, the, the, several companies have already said well, we're delaying the you know back to work type situation, and there's only going to be a lot more going to do that. And now we're also talking about the lambda variants, got all these new variants. Uh, I totally agree that that we do need you know people need to be uh, in office to a certain amount of time. It's good for learning, it's good for training, it's good for um, uh, uh, you know corporate culture. But we're you know this this work at least some time away from the office is 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 here to stay. And I'll tell you one thing: recently, in the last literally last month or two, the number of people using Zoom phone has skyrocketed. And it's really allowed them to get to get involved in some of these uh, these calls uh, in a in a in a big way. And I just think that this is going to be a bigger room for uh, for upside for the company than I think a lot of people realize right now. Okay, fair enough. Because we we should definitely talk about that aspect of this call as well. But Diana, you know. I'm already losing track of what year the pandemic began in. That's how long it's been going on. I'm forgetting, wait, was it was it March 2020? But then March 2021, we were still in it. And now 2022. And all these people who bought homes, I know many, many of them way outside of where they worked. And at the time, I thought, geez, that's a pretty big risk to take. And now I'm going, they were geniuses. I mean, this is, this is going to go on for years and years. 
Yeah, we haven't seen housing demand really fall off at all. The only reason that we're seeing sales come down a little bit over the summer is affordability. And we actually got a report this week from the Atlanta Fed saying that affordability for housing hasn't been this bad since 2008. And that's because so much demand is in the market and there's still so little supply. And it's not just demand to buy homes, but you're seeing that rental trade, too. I mean, I can't tell you how high the rents are just insane, whether it's in New York City still are going up again or right here in D.C., but not just the rents, the the activity looking to find rent. We're seeing uh, Rent Cafe just reported that the number of people out looking for rentals is up 40% in D.C., up 78% in San Francisco, up over 90% in New York City. It's people moving around, just trying to find out where the best place is going to be for them. Wow. And I don't know if it's actually that urban flight thing or even just staying in the cities. Yeah, that's fair enough. And bargain hunting, I mean, again, the prices create demand, you know, whether they're going up or down or what have you, you're going to see this massive population shift uh, is underway. So we'll circle back to New York in just a moment. But let's talk first one more thing about the technology here. Microsoft getting a hike at Wedbush to 350 a share today with the firm saying its cloud service is hitting a new growth stride. They're calling Azure and Office 365 the backbone and artery of tech services and expect a tidal wave of new business as companies scramble to meet long-term remote work needs. They're saying the upcoming Office software suite price hike could be a $5 billion windfall. Microsoft is up 2% today. Matt, it's up 36% this year. So unlike Zoom, which is kind of taken a breather, had a much sharper 2020, long-term prospects for something like Microsoft just seem to look pretty good. Oh, there's no question. It, it's so funny how this is one of, you know, in the 1990s, one of the premier technology companies in the world, and it just kind of fell down and, and in a significant way, but boy, what a comeback uh, under the new management. It's done incredibly well. It's an incredibly well-run com company, and, and I love what, uh, you know, what the, the, you know, the, the way the, the street analysis has been really, you know, pumping the stock. The problem is uh, there's a difference between a good company and a good stock. Microsoft Right now, it is the most overbought it's been. Uh, if you look at its weekly RSI chart, it's getting back very close to the level uh, it, it saw back in uh, 2000, you know, right in early 2020. Hmm. It's also at a, a 90, over a 90% premium to its 200 day moving average, uh, sorry, 200 week moving average. And again, that's the same it was right before it sold off there in early 2020. So again, I love the company. I, I like the stock longer term. I just think I wouldn't be chasing it up here. And uh, I'm not saying, geez, you should sell it and try to buy lower. Right. I'm just saying, hold on to it. And if you want to buy more, let it come to you. All right. Fair enough. All right. So we've talked about the software for remote work. Uh, but moving along, let's talk about the return to office period. The latest REIT data shows that 90 percent of office buildings around the country were occupied as of Q2. This is a higher number than I would have thought. Even in the business hub, New York City occupancy is around 81 percent. That still leaves 47 million square feet of empty office space in midtown Manhattan. With Delta complicating return plans, only about a quarter of workers are actually back in offices across the city. So the office might be leased, but nobody's there. And with people fleeing a lot of cities to homes in the suburbs, will this present a whole new set of challenges? Diana, again, uh, to take the New York example, State Street just said it's leaving its Manhattan offices. It's allowing workers or encouraging them to work in New Jersey or in Stamford, Connecticut, which is kind of benefiting from this population shift. But it's otherwise saying you don't really need to make plans unless you really need to get yourself back into the office. Yeah, and I think it's really creating this great dynamic in the housing market where you're seeing these boom in smaller cities, more affordable cities. People saying, well, if I don't have to go back to the office in New York City, well, maybe I'll move upstate or maybe I'll move to Buffalo or Syracuse or somewhere less of 
that's more affordable for me. And so you're seeing that migration to smaller cities, a boom in those cities. But, of course, Kelly, like you said, you're going to see prices in those cities go up as well. So it's like if you bought last summer, yeah, you were probably the smartest person on the earth because prices are still going up. And people say, okay, prices are cooling down a little bit because, you know, things are getting out of hand. They're cooling. They're not falling. It's right. just that the price appreciation may start to come back. It's still an incredible deal right now. If you bought last year, you're sitting pretty. No, it's true. Even though we saw some of those bidding wars and things, you know, people got ahead of it because it's just gone on and on. Robert, I want to go back to the point Diana was making earlier about this kind of surge in interest in rents in uh, some of the big cities like New York and San Francisco. The fact that there's been persistent um, owner occupancy of leases, even if the employees aren't there. You know, I guess in that sense, this is a big bet that life as we knew it pre-pandemic will continue in some of these areas, which have also been plagued by crime and homelessness and other issues. Absolutely. And I, I think Diane has done a great job reporting on the just overall shortage of housing in the country. That has emerged as perhaps more important than just the, the momentary shift from the urban areas to the suburbs. But if you look at New York City, yes, rents had their best quarter for new leases ever in the second quarter. But we still have 20,000 empty apartments either for sale or for rent in Manhattan. And to your point earlier, we don't know once people start coming back to the office in October or whenever it is this year, hopefully, how many people come back, how many days they're back, and what kind of office footprint companies need. What's ironic about New York City is that most of the new commercial leases are by the very high-tech companies, whether it's Facebook or Amazon or Google, that have come out and said, look, we're going to go either hybrid or fully remote going forward on a permanent basis. So maybe they've taken the space, but maybe they won't end up needing it. And because these commercial leases are so long term, usually 10 years, it may be a long time before we actually see how much office space is needed in Manhattan. My sense is probably not as much as has been built yeah. and is there right now. And uh, I mean, are they all residential then, Robert? It's interesting because we can see the skyline from where I live is about 13 miles away. And we look at the Manhattan skyline. I go, I don't even know what these buildings are that are sticking up anymore. You know, I can I can figure out Empire State. OK, World Trade Center. There's like yeah. there's all these buildings into the sky. Are these all just, you know, um, for residences, obviously? Well, the, the little spikes near Central Park, those are residences, uh, all the billionaires row there. Everything in Midtown, like the, the giant tower that's right next to Grand Central Station and many of the Midtown ones, those are commercial spaces, whether it's Hudson Yards or by Grand Central. A vast millions of square feet of new commercial space has just come online either right before or during the pandemic. And that has yet to be absorbed. So you've got the combination of the large supply just coming on and an unknown about new leases going forward. So I think New York obviously has a, had a great recovery on the residential side. Yeah. We don't know what the commercial side and the business heart is going to look like. So before we move on from this, Matt, what would you do with real estate plays? The residential REITs, the apartment REITs, office REITs. I mean, there's so many, you know, the category in general with the, what's implied there for interest rates. What, what would you say to investors? Well, I think we need to be a little careful here. I mean, obviously, we're moving into this kind of a seasonally uh, uh, tough time for the stock market anyway. Uh, but for REITs in, in general, I mean, you know, as uh, 
you know, you guys have been t- talking about, geez, here in Boston, I mean, right before the pandemic, I mean, you wouldn't believe the number of cranes that were hovering over over the city. Just unbelievable buildup there. And, and even though people are certainly moving back in, into the city again, uh, it's going to be a while, uh, you know, as Robert says, for, to really, really figure out, you know, how much they really need, how much can be filled. And so I think it's one I, I want to step back from right now. All right. Fair enough. Before we go, if you miss the feeling of actually being in an office, Facebook has an app for that. They are launching Horizon Workrooms. It's a VR office meeting platform set in the metaverse. Users create cartoon avatars, interact with coworkers in a 3D conference room, complete with spatial sound and hand motion tracking. The service is currently free, but you will need an Oculus VR headset to join. This has been described as everything from Zoom on steroids, as you can see there, to kind of like Sim City in person or The Sims, Robert, you remember those. But the thing is, I look at this yeah. and I go, this is like video games in the early 90s. Look where we are now. Diana, come on. I definitely think this is, this um, is happening. No. It's totally, no. Diana, it's totally happening. I, I mean, no, I mean, it's totally happening, but maybe for some young people. But I got to say, look, I want to be in the office. Maybe I'm the only one out there, but I want to get back and actually see people other than this cameraman that I've been, you know, quarantined with for the last year and a half. Love you, Pat. But, you know, I want to go back and see the rest of the office. I don't want to just pretend that they're there or sit in a stadium with them. And just to the point that Robert was making about tech workers in offices, you know, we think tech that people don't have to be in the office and that's why it's going to keep them out. But actually, if you talk to I talked to John Foley, the CEO of uh, Peloton, which he considers to be a tech and media company, he wants everybody back. He says he wants people to be able to talk to each other, and that's where they're most productive. He don't, wants to keep everything safe. They're not going back yet. But he was very adamant that as soon as it's safe, he wants his workers back. I, I'm pro-office, Robert. I just call got to call a spade a spade. I see. I look at that Facebook thing. I go, in 20 years, I'm, we're all going to be sitting and we're going to be doing virtual rapid fire or something. I'm pro-office, too, but if we're going to be virtual, can we at least have legs? I mean, did they run out of money when the animators are supposed to draw legs on us? Or what, because we're wearing, like, our joggers and our Lululemons, they don't want to draw the legs? I mean, that they, they just can have to pick our animate the legs, and then I'll be all in on that. <laughs> Let us choose. Then everyone will be all for it. <laughs> we, don't, we don't want it based on reality. Robert Frank, Diana Olick, and Matt Maley, thank you all very, very much for this edition of Real Estate Rapid Fire. Still ahead, one of the biggest mortgage lenders in America will start accepting Bitcoin. The details and whether other coins will be accepted in the future. That's next. Welcome back. From virtual tours to online mortgages, there's been plenty of tech and innovation in the housing market lately. Now you can add Bitcoin to the list. For the first time ever, some homebuyers will have the option to pay for their mortgage with the coin. CNBC.com's Mackenzie Sigalos is here with more. Mackenzie? Hey, Kelly. So potentially as soon as Q3 of this year, you could be paying for your mortgage in Bitcoin, And eventually in Ether, United Wholesale Mortgage said this week that it has plans to accept cryptocurrency for home loans. Now, the CEO made the announcement halfway through the company's earnings call, and he's billing it as a first for the mortgage industry here in the U.S. I spoke with the team there, and they say that they're thinking about starting with Bitcoin, but they are actively in the process of evaluating other digital currencies. To put this into context, it's actually a pretty big deal. UWM is the nation's second biggest mortgage lender after Quicken. They had $59.2 billion in loan volume last quarter. 
But also really important to keep in mind here, this push into decentralized digital money comes at a time of heightened scrutiny of crypto from all sides in the U.S. We've got revamped crypto tax rules as part of the $1 trillion infrastructure bill, not to mention the fact that top financial authorities like Janet Yellen and Gary Gensler have recently been weighing in on the question of whether to regulate cryptocurrencies. Kelly? I'm just going to ask the question I ask every single one of these stories, Mackenzie. If you pay your mortgage, so let's say your mortgage is $1,300 a month and you pay it with Bitcoin, isn't that treated as a sale of Bitcoin and you would be taxed on it accordingly? Right, exactly. So it, it really depends on how the, the cryptocurrency is treated at the point of transaction. So if the company immediately converts it to fiat, uh, then it is a sale of a property because Bitcoin is considered a property uh, here in the U.S. And if your if your cryptocurrency has appreciated it in value since you first bought it, then you are subject to capital gains tax. Now, I reached out to the company and I asked them whether or not they plan to do that or if they are actually going to accept Bitcoin and hold it on their balance sheet. And I haven't heard back yet. (laughs) That would be an interesting case if they just held it still. You'd think that'd be a transfer anyhow, uh, illustrating that people are going down this road regardless of the tax implications. Mackenzie, thank you very, very much. Mackenzie Segalos. Still ahead, Democrats are poised to pass a three and a half trillion dollar spending plan, but a new paper suggests taxes are actually the best way to stimulate the economy. We'll look at why next and tune into a special edition of Fast Money tonight, focusing on the next generation of innovation, disruption and technology. The next starts at 6 p.m. Eastern right here on CNBC. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.